this morning since I knew that we'd be coming to the communion table together as I was deciding what to preach about, I thought I would preach about salvation. And so I encourage you to come to Ephesians chapter 2. This was the passage that the Lord in His mercy used, verses 8 and 9 especially, to really turn the light on in my own heart. Once I had started to become really concerned about my soul, if we can still start uh, talk about uh, in language like that, when I was, became concerned about if there is a God, how was I related to Him? And uh, I had gone, as I've shared before from time to time, we had gone to a liberal Presbyterian church every now and then. A lot of Presbyterian churches are faithful and gospel-believing, but this one wasn't. And so I just sort of picked up that you were supposed to be nice and kind, and you know that's mostly nicer to my sister, as I've said, and that was sort of the message that I got from Christianity at the time. But then things happened in my family, and there was real turmoil, and even as someone at a junior high age, I was just really sort of shaken to the core, and I wanted to attach to something strong and deep and, and durable. And so there were some friends who belonged, as it were, to a, a Seventh-day Adventist church. And even though later I would come to know that they believed some things that were fundamentally mistaken, at least they were sincere and ardent about going to the Word of God, going to the Bible to find out what we're to believe and how we're to relate to God and engage with God. And it was during camp meeting that they had, they used to have it over in Grand Ledge as well, during camp meeting where you would play softball or play and then you'd go to uh, the services and you'd hear the preaching. Then you'd go for more recreation, then you'd go and hear more of the preaching. And there was a professor from Andrews University who was down at the Ohio camp meeting and he preached on justification by grace alone through faith alone. He was one of the Adventists who were coming to understand that they had blended faith and works and grace and merit in ways that twisted what the Bible taught. And he taught the truth that summarized in verses 8 and 9, and that's what turned the light on, on that night, using my mom's Bible, which I look back to as the hour I first believed. But also, even as I was preparing this sermon this time, it dawned on me in a way that's never done before. That's one of the wonderful things about coming to God's Word. You can come to passages that you've been to a million times and see something that was always there, but you see it for the first time. And maybe not for the very first time, but certainly in the full way that it hit me this time, I realized that while I had latched on to verses 8 and 9 to gain a wonderful necessary, needed correction and insight, somehow I had sort of missed verse 10. And in fact, the Christianity then that I would go into, and I'm going to go into all the historical reasons why, but the stream of Christianity, the version of Christianity, evangelical Christianity that I became a part of, and South is in that stream too, focuses on verses 8 and 9, but sort of misses verse 10. 
So some of what I wanted to try to do together this morning is to reconnect because we're not supposed to separate what God has joined together. There's another way of thinking about this wonderful passage in Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 10. And that is, it actually is the spiritual autobiography of every true believer. There are some things about when people come to faith that we don't reproduce. Not everybody is going to be struck down from your horse when you're riding to Damascus when you get saved. That's not true of everybody. In fact, how many here had that happen? See what I mean? So that's not going to happen to everybody. But what is described in these verses is true in one way or another about everyone. Now with children it's a little different, but it seems to me the wisdom is find the passages that describe salvation that's mostly related to adults and then to work back from there to the experience of children, not to try to extrapolate from the experience of children and then sort of shrink back the response to the gospel for adults. Anyway, let me read Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 and already as we read through, see if you find in there the different kind of stages as it were in your own coming into salvation. Paul is writing to these people that he himself had ministered, Acts 19 and 20 in Ephesus. He had planted this church This church, and this letter was also written to surrounding churches, but he had planted this one in Ephesus. And now he's going back and rehearsing with them their spiritual autobiography to remind them of things that now they need to believe and to live out. And so he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, you used to walk, When you follow the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, that's a mystifying phrase, and we're not going to spend a lot of time, but it's not mystifying as to who it's referring to. It's Satan. And so follow the ways of this world and of Satan, the spirit who now is at work, who energizes those who are disobedient. You know, that's the Bible's fundamental word, really, for believer, excuse me, for an unbeliever, a non-believer, the disobedient. All of us also, Paul includes himself. He was a religious, pious Jew, but not really born again, not really knowing the Lord through Christ. All of us also lived among them at one time. What kind of life? Gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Doesn't mean just sensual sin. Flesh is Human life with God left out. Following the cravings, the different forms that they take of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. We live for ourselves. Like the rest, we were by nature, literally Paul says next, children of wrath. Those utterly deserving of the divine wrath because of our transgressions and sins, our rebellion and our ignoring and defying God. That's the first part. That's man apart from Christ. That's any human being, one way or another, religious even or irreligious, apart from Christ. 
And then it pivots to the great glorious good news of the gospel. But because of his great love for us, more literally, the great love with which he loved us, Paul says, because of that, God was going to act to save and to rescue those who could not possibly save themselves because they were spiritually dead in transgressions and sins. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgression. It's by grace you've been saved. He gives a little preview of the point that he wants to make. This undeserved kindness burst into your experience when God made you dead to him and dead to the things of God, when he made you alive, when he turned the light on. It is by grace, undeserved, undeservable kindness that you've been saved. And he didn't just make you alive. God raised us up with Christ and seated, with him, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And the great goal of all of it, in order that in the coming ages he might show, and here's more language, the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to you, to me. In Christ Jesus. And then he gives the great summarizing sentences. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Not by works. So that no one can boast. But then this too just as true. For we are God's workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Or more literally, that we should walk in them. And so as we think of this passage, this true spiritual biography of every true Christian in the time that we have. Much of it, most of you have experienced and grasped and understood. But it seems to me there are two things that are often these days especially somewhat missing and somewhat misunderstood at least when it comes to salvation. The first is, what is our real problem or plight that makes salvation so necessary, so urgent, so important? The second is, what is the ultimate point and purpose of our salvation? The first question, again, just to kind of preview where we're going, the real problem or plight that makes salvation necessary and so important is we are alienated from a holy God with all the consequences that would be, bring. Spiritual death, slavery, bondage to sin and Satan, and the experience of God's End time, final wrath and judgment. Secondly, what's the point and purpose? It's not only to get us to heaven, it is to recreate us, your God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus, to recreate us into the kind of people who belong in heaven and who would fit there. People who would live for his glory, 
not in the selfish, sinful ways that we lived in the past. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Saved from what? The Bible answer is saved from spiritual death and being brought to life. Saved from slavery to sin and to Satan with all the miseries that go with that. The Bible answer is saved from the experience of God's final wrath. But these days when it comes to church and even Christianity, are those the things that preoccupy people when they think about religion and relating to God? Today talk of being dead in transgressions and sins, totally separated and disconnected from the things of God, that just sounds sort of extreme and far-fetched. Talk of divine wrath, if we ever do talk about it, we don't really know what to make of that. I don't think that sinks in. Even though the Lord Jesus himself said more about hell than anyone else in the New Testament. Even though John 3, which contains that wonderful, our favorite gospel verse, John 3.16, ends with that chapter, He who believes on the Son has everlasting life, but he who rejects the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God, what's the next word? abideth, remains on him or her. What does that say? It means that if you're still dead in your trespasses and sins, if you've never been saved in the way these verses are describing, the wrath of God won't only be upon you in the end, it's on you now. In a way that's mysterious to us and get used to, there will be things about engaging with an infinite almighty God that will be mysterious and hard to understand. He's angry with us while he loves us and offers us mercy. I don't have time to play that out, but you know a little bit about something like that if you've been a parent, where you can simultaneously be very truly and even righteously angry and still love. The wrath of God abides today, this morning, on everyone apart from him, apart from Christ. These are the things that we need to be saved from. The, John the Baptist talks about fleeing from the wrath to come. And Paul, the apostle of grace, in 1 Thessalonians 1, when he's describing in a summary way their conversion, says, you turn to God from idols, to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus. And then how does he describe him? Who saves us from the coming wrath. Who really worries about that today? And given what people encounter, even when they come to so many evangelical churches today, why would they? Do they feel meaningfully warned when they hear from us? Do they ever in any way that is sort of psychologically well-suited, not just sort of rattled off, but some way existentially meaningful, do they encounter the prospect of experiencing the divine wrath? 
Sinclair Ferguson, I was just reading one of his books, and he gave a sober, somber, but faithful summary of, of what everlasting punishment will mean. And you know what? While I was preparing to give the message, I thought, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that quote. And then I read it myself, and I'm like, oh, they're not going to like, that's not, that's harsh, that's just too, that's just too stern. I'm a conservative preacher, and I felt that way. We've got to be heralds and ambassadors who tell the king's message as it is, not who edit and revise, tamper with, or tone down. And as much, again, as even Jesus spoke of the divine wrath, and so this, the unbeliever will experience eternal separation from God. Sometimes it's described as being sent outside and away from the presence of the Lord. It's a fire that burns eternally, an outer darkness where there is weeping, a gnashing of teeth. It involves destruction, dissolution. Isaiah's, I'm undone. Dante caught the despair of this in the divine comedy in the words he inscribed over the entrance to hell. Abandon hope, all you who enter here, because it's everlasting. And so the Puritan Thomas Brooks cried out, Oh, but this word eternity, 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 this word everlasting, everlasting, this word, forever, 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 will even break the hearts of the damned in 10,000 pieces. Oh, that word never, said a poor despairing creature on his deathbed, breaks my heart. Impenitent sinners in hell shall have end without end, death without death, night without day, mourning without mirth, sorrow without solace, and bondage without liberty. The damned shall live as long in hell as God himself shall live in heaven. Officially, that's still in our doctrinal statement, something like it somewhere. But is it in our everyday way that we think about God and his holiness and that we think about the fate and the destiny of loved ones and friends and co-workers and strangers and those in far-off places or down the street who don't know Christ. It matters to get saved from the wrath to come. And if we restored our sense of these realities, we would, I think, be more fruitful and effective when we evangelize because people would realize we're not just talking about God as a life coach we're God as a problem solver ways that it seems like he's so often described even within Bible believing churches in some ways as our good and faithful shepherd he is those things but profoundly Christ is our Savior from sin's slavery and from sin's penalty and punishment. 
saved from the wrath to come. He's that kind of Savior because He's so good, He's so kind, He's so loving. We've got to find a way to remarry those things in our understandings, in our engaging with God. We think either or when it comes to wrath or great love. But in the Bible, He's truly both. And so we need that salvation. And when my conscience was struck by God's law, during that time of my own kind of wandering and wondering, I naturally, like we naturally do, thought, I am going to get more religious. I'm going to become observant. I'm going to become church-going. And I'm going to try to change my life. And I'm going to earn God's forgiveness. And that's why I needed to hear so desperately the truth of verses 8 and 9. I remember how powerfully it hit me. Because after months of striving to earn it myself, I found out it's not how it works. By grace you're saved. It's a gift. Paul says, not of yourselves, not of works, so that no one can boast. No one can share the credit for it. Well, then how? It is a gift. God gave us his son he so loved the world that he did that. He gave us a son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's when I realized it's faith alone. And with the empty hand of faith, reached out and accepted the gift. That's all you do is a gift. You just receive it. The gift of forgiveness. Justification is the good, strong Bible word. I was now just, righteous in God's sight because entirely of what Christ had done. <clears throat> not of works, not from yourself, not something that we can ever boast about ourselves. And it transformed. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that great truth of that peace with God, purchased by the blood of Christ, that's what dawned on my soul that day. But somehow, through the message I received in the ongoing, and I don't have time, but somehow I still missed verse 10. Verse 10 is equally as important in describing a true conversion and a real experience of salvation. And just as importantly, verse 10 is just as wonderful and blessed a gift that God gives in salvation. Because as we've already seen, we're not only guilty, we're slaves to sin and to Satan. Paul goes on to say, we're God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that from now on they're going to be our way of life. I wish I had more time. But not only does God give us his son to save us from sin's condemning penalty, he also gives us his spirit to save us from sin's enslaving power. And they always go together. 
There's never a time when Christ saves and only justifies without regenerating, recreating, and bringing someone to new birth and giving them the Holy Spirit. They always go together. And so they always manifest themselves in not just trust in Jesus as Savior, but as a theme that I return to again and again because I keep seeing the consequences of our neglect of it, but also allegiance to Jesus as Lord. And that is every bit as much a glorious part, that renewal, that rebirth. Go with me to chapter 4. Just briefly, when we see that when Paul picks up what he says in verse 10 and he spells it out beginning in verse 17. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles, that is as unbelievers, live. And then he describes their life. But see the point? You're no longer to live that way. He doesn't use the word repent here, but that's exactly what he's describing. He says after he's described the life in sin in verses 17 to 19 and verse 20, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely, he's assuming because he did the evangelizing and the catechizing himself, you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Now what we have here is Paul saying, when I do evangelism, this is what I teach too, that the new life in Christ will look like. You were taught, verse 22, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, your old identity, your old man, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. That's what happens when someone is created in Christ Jesus under good works. When we are God's handiwork. Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. The old passed away. Behold, the new has come. And so that's what I wish I had realized more strongly and completely when I made my profession of faith. Because there were months and even years where I was too unsteady and unsure of what my decision to trust in Christ as Savior meant. And I underestimated, undervalued what it meant. That the Bible says that if we come to Christ in grace, sin shall no longer be your master. Because you're not under law, you're under grace. That's another way of saying You've been born again by the Holy Spirit to walk in newness of life. And if you walk by the Spirit, Galatians 5, you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. And so I am forever grateful for Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. But even now, comprehending more and more what it means to realize that with the salvation that Christ saves... I'm also new creation. I'm also remade, reborn to walk in newness of life. And I'm not so sure that these things are taught the way Paul taught them to the Ephesians today. I'm not so sure that we realize that when Christ saves, it's not only a glorious justification and a forgiveness, it's a transformation 
and a new birth and a new creation that manifests itself in the good works. Not by good works we're saved, but for them absolutely and inevitably when salvation has really come into a life. And so honestly, I just want to say to you, first of all to ask if you've been saved in the way that Paul describes. And if you haven't yet or you're not sure, you don't rush these things or treat them lightly. Are you sure you're saved from the coming wrath? Let me remind you of the urgency of it. But then see, this is the path to summarize it. Repent and believe. Turn from, turn to. And trust in Christ as Savior, receiving the gift not only of pardon, but of power to change. And then start to walk in the fellowship of the church with the ministry of the Word by which the Spirit works to make you more and more like Jesus Christ. That's the invitation to you. And that can start, or for some, maybe what I'm saying to you is ringing true in the sense that you've been sort of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 Christians so far, but maybe for you or the people that you care about, Ephesians 2.10 has sort of been left out and very much needs to be reconnected. And may I say finally, this newness of life that's offered to us is not the catch, not the downside of salvation. It is part of the glorious gift to be freed from slavery to sin to self and to Satan. To begin to truly love God and love one another. Let's pray together. Father, I pray that this passage can be used to kind of help us look at our own experience and say, is this my spiritual autobiography? Beginning in the early verses with the right problem, understanding our true plight, and ending with that final verse, to recognize that when salvation comes, it pardons, but it also purifies. It forgives, but it also inevitably transforms. Help us to understand and experience these things truly. In Christ's name, amen.